0: We are continuing this series, RSVP, Thou Shalt Party. What is all of that about? It's about the feasts and festivals of the Old Testament and what we can learn from them. And this weekend we're thinking about the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets, the great gathering to come. Now you can, uh, you can take notes on your bulletin. You can use the Timberline app to get the outline and, and take some notes as well. But I just need to make this comment because some of you have already noticed that there are seven points in this weekend's message. And I can sense nervousness from you already about that. Fear not, little flock. All will be well. We will be visiting these points briefly and you will be out in time to eat the dead chicken. So everything (laughs) is good. We're going to look at Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. Uh, the feast of trumpets. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present a food offering to the Lord. And that's pretty much it. The Bible doesn't tell us much else about the feast of trumpets, but it is possible with a little bit of detective work to figure out what this was all about. What we do know is this, that over in the New Testament, writers in the New Testament utilized the imagery of the Feast of Trumpets to talk about the second coming of Christ and the resurrection body that you and I, if we are followers of Jesus, will experience. And so have a look with me at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51. The Apostle Paul says this, listen... Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on to say these words that we're going to really focus on a little later. Therefore, therefore, my, brothers, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Vocabulary words can be difficult uh, because they can mean different things in different nations. And so um, in England, what you call the sidewalk, we call the pavement. And this is a bit confusing. You call anything that is paved the pavement and that makes sense it's the pavement and the sidewalk is on the side of the pavement and you walk on it so good job i mean that, that's really good but for us the pavement is the sidewalk so i went to dinner with friends years ago when we first came here and they said just park on the on the pavement <laughs> so i parked up on the sidewalk i thought Kind of weird, but there you go. That's the way it is. These things can be complicated. And then stuff like, I'm hesitant about sharing this, but you know like those occasions when you're driving and members of the police force decide they want to have a little visit. (laughs) A little visit with you. Now I want to be clear. Uh, My wife was kind of surprised that I confessed this last night. She said to me when we got home, I'm surprised you said that. And actually, come to think of it, she says that statement to me most <laughs> days. And uh, uh, I, I want to be clear that speeding is a really bad idea. And I'm being serious. I'm, I'm not laughing about speeding. I'm, I want to be clear about that. What I am slightly amused by is my own confusion. You see, in England, if you're driving and and the the police wanna chat with you, what used to happen is they would pull in front of you, not behind you, pull in front of you. They had a little light on the back of the car that said, stop, 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 stop. And you pull over, because you you wanna stop, you know. And they don't do that now. They do it the American way, because they wanna be like you. (laughs) They've seen those cop shows, but back then, it was different. So we're in Oregon, and we just arrived, and I'm driving along. I must have been, I don't know, one, two miles an hour over the limit. And, and the cop comes up behind me, and he puts his lights on. And I thought he'd, he'd, he'd be in front of me if he wanted to visit, so I just carried on driving. Just carried on. Then he put his siren on. Woo, woo, Lights flashing, lights flashing. And I thought, he just wants to pass me. off. just carry on driving then he spoke through the PA system. He said, pull over. So I'm, Ooh, okay, I pull over. I pull over and I, I jump out the car. How many know that's a bad idea? And I immediately assume a posture of worship because he's assuming a posture like this. My wife has been stopped, but she's never got a ticket. She, she just becomes really British. Hello, officer. Frankly, good to see you. really good, lovely. <laughs> I'd get a ticket. He wants to take her to dinner. What's that about? Anyway, here's the confession. I was going to the airport. I was a little late. Do you know that? Do you know that turnoff off the toll road at the airport? It's evil because <laughs> it goes from 75 to 50 in about hundred yards. And, and if you don't slow down in time, you, you're in trouble. And the, the policeman was there, and he stopped me. And, and I got a summons. And I had, I had to go to court. And I had friends visiting in town, and they said, we'll come along and support you. They just came for the entertainment. They just... <laughs> a summons to judgment. And I had to go. I couldn't say, well, I don't feel like it. I'm busy that day. I was summoned. The Feast of Trumpets was a summons, a demand, an insistence that Everyone gather, and there was a measure of judgment about it too. This signaled the beginning of a 10-day period prior to the Day of Atonement. In rabbinic theology, they believed that God would weigh every person's heart during that 10 days. It was a summons to judgment and a summons to celebration, too. And these days it's considered to be the beginning of the new year. Our Jewish friends exchange New Year cards. And they greet each other, Shana Tova, Happy New Year. And they eat chalah bread, which is meant to represent the manna given to the Israelites in the wilderness. Um, and they eat apples dipped in honey to speak of the sweetness of the year to come. But here's the point, they were summoned to judgment and celebration. So what can we learn? Well, first of all, here's the first thing for you. The original feast. The original feast, gathering to celebrate the victorious king. That was what this was, we think, originally about. First day of the seventh month, for us somewhere in September, October, uh, the high priest uh, would stand on the southwestern parapet of the temple and he would sound the trumpet, the shofar, the ram's horn. And if you were in the fields harvesting, too bad, buddy, if the harvest is not in. You've got to quit work and it's done now because you are summoned to gather. Now, as I mentioned, we don't know exactly why, but I think we can piece it together. Some people say, that this was a festival to celebrate God's grace to Abraham when Isaac was spared and the ram was sacrificed, hence the ram's horn, the shofar. Others would say it celebrates the birthday of the world, creation, when the sons of God shouted for joy, Job 38 says. Others see this as a royal event, God as the king of Israel. With trumpets and the sounds of the shofar, make a joyful noise to the Lord, the king, Psalm 98. What we do know for sure is that this festival was about gathering and very likely was associated with the gathering of God's people to Mount Sinai that is spoken about in Exodus chapter 19. The trumpet was sounded and then under Moses' leadership, God's people came out and were gathered to meet God here's what we can be sure of this was about gathering and God is a gathering God and here's where I get to an awkward bit for me as a pastor you see what I'm about to say can make it sound like I just want to see more seats filled here in the building and it's not about that but I want to say that God is a gathering God and gathering here is important and being together Do we see gathering as priority? You see, for them, it was priority. Leave the harvest. Leave your business. You've got business with God now. I wonder whether we see church as option. Yeah, maybe. Or church as disruption, allowing it to disrupt our lives because we see this as a priority. And I'm not talking about the idea that, you know, where you you can't go and grill out and have a day out with the family because if you miss church, God's going to probably kill you. I'm not suggesting any of that. What I am suggesting is gathering as priority and then gathering as participation. Uh, You look at all of these feasts and festivals, and it was not about spectatorism. It was about God's people coming together. That's why... Increasingly, I want to invite us as a congregation, as a family, more about that later, to participate in celebrating Jesus and not somehow spectating. And celebration was also a big part of this as well. Let me make this statement, which might come as a surprise to some. At the heart of the universe is a party planner. That's abundantly true, both from Old and New Testaments. God calls us to gather. Secondly, secondly, the New Testament truth, Christ has beaten death and will gather his people. He's beaten death and will gather his people. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 24. Then will appear the signs of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the people of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in heaven with power and great glory. And here it comes. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. And then the Apostle Paul, again using this pictorial image, in 1 Thessalonians 4, says this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Add to that the passage of scripture that we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15, the trumpet of the Lord again, and you can see the consistent theme. I have realized that in my life I have reacted to madness that has surrounded the truth of the second coming of Jesus. There's been a lot of crazy stuff said about Jesus' coming with people trying to set dates and times and foolishness. And When I became a Christian back in 1842, we were kind of preoccupied with the second coming. In fact, frankly, we were somewhat neurotic and nervous about the second coming. I can remember, and maybe this has happened to you, I'd, I'd go to the grocery store with Kay and she'd disappear and after five minutes I was okay but after 10 I'm like she's been taken and I've been left behind and then I'd find her two minutes later in the frozen food section and I would rejoice greatly We've reacted maybe to some of the madness by not talking about this enough. Resurrection and second coming are core to our faith. The Bible is not, or Christianity is not just an ethical system to live by. Well, never mind about all that second coming and resurrection stuff, it's just the best way to live. The Apostle Paul drives a truck through that idea and says if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. We perhaps neglect the truth because of the madness. You know that I lose stuff all the time. I forget where I've left things. I mislay my sunglasses, my car keys, occasionally my car. <laughs> A couple of weeks ago, I got in the shower. I took my glasses off before getting in the shower. Don't imagine this. it's not healthy. But I, got, I took my glasses off and... Um, And uh, I got out of the shower and I couldn't find my glasses. But now I didn't have my glasses to help me find my glasses. (laughs) And here's what I mislay occasionally. I just mislay the truth that in Jesus I'm going to live forever. It just slips my mind. Just forget that he's coming back. I forget that. And people say, are we living in the light of eternity? And I used to think, what does that mean? You see, the second coming calls us to live in the gap between now and his coming. And that's the third point, the second coming, living in the gap. The Apostle Paul says, thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. And then he says, therefore, in studying Paul's writing... I found out that he's a therefore, so what kind of guy. He doesn't just paint pictures of theological truth, but he quickly brings application to those truths. So, in 1 Corinthians 11, he's talking about communion. And then he says, so then, so then, wait for each other. And in 1 Corinthians 14, he's talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, don't forbid speaking in tongues. You see, he's painting a truth, and then he's giving us the so what. And in 1 Corinthians 15, in talking about second coming and resurrection, he's giving us so what. Have we in the past become inordinately preoccupied with speculation about when Jesus is coming, but have neglected the more important truth of how we should live today in the light of His coming. Well, here in verse 58, the Apostle Paul gives us some help. Let's have a look at this. Point number four. First of all, because Christ is coming, he's encouraged, Paul is encouraging us, stay together, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, he calls them. Hope changes the way we see each other. When Kay and I first came to America with our young family, I was an associate pastor at a church in Oregon. And some people from the church came to me and they said, what should we call you? And I said, Jeff. There's a thought. Jeff. I said, not Jeffrey. Jeffrey don't like Jeffrey. Now, can I just say, if your name is Jeffrey, I apologize for what I'm about to say. But I don't like my name. It To me, Jeffrey it sounds like a children's puppet. Hello, children. Say hello to Jeffrey. And I've already met people through the course of this weekend whose name is Jeffrey. And we've had a happy time of sharing together. So I said, call me Jeff because only my mother, when she was alive, and, and, and my wife, when I'd been bad, called me Jeffrey. And they said, oh, no, we can't call you, can't call you Jeff. And they started calling us brother and sister Lucas. And I'm like, I feel like I'm hanging out with a nun. <laughs> Mind you, this brother and sister thing can be very helpful if you, don't know, if you can't remember someone's name. You know, a friend you've known for 20 years and suddenly you go, hey, great to see you. How are you doing, brother? But the Apostle Paul, get this, the Apostle Paul is writing to a bunch of people, some of whom hate him. They reject his authority. They are making scurrilous accusations about him. Some of them are getting drunk during the meetings. Some of them are interrupting the preacher mid-flow. Don't even think about it. But uh, he writes to them and he calls this group, these Corinthians, brother and sister. You see, his resurrection theology enables him to remember that we're family. I need to remember that because people are irritating. used to have a guy in my church when I, we church planted right at the beginning. I was, 21, I was a senior pastor at 21. Can you believe that? telling all these lovely people how they should live their lives from my vast reservoir of experience. (laughs) It's not to be disparaging to 21-year-olds, it's to celebrate the graciousness of those older people. But there was a guy in our church, he really did not like me. So here's what happened. When I got up to preach, he would get up, pick up his chair, and turn and face the wall. (laughs) Don't even think about it. And I'd preach and I'd be looking at the side of his head and he'd be sitting there like. And then when I finished preaching, he'd get up and turn his chair back around. Every week. Bless him. I bumped into him 20 years later. Jeff, he said, great to see you. Didn't we have some great times together back then? I'm like, What? He was staring at the wall. We can be irritating. I can be irritating. Don't you dare say amen. <laughs> I've been, odd things that we do, like when I started preaching, I'd have a microphone in one hand and a Bible in another, and my glasses would slip down my nose because of perspiration, too much information. And I couldn't adjust them because i would got a microphone and, and a Bible, so I'd be preaching away, and I'd suddenly go, I'll do that again without a safety net, you ready? The front three rows would jump, and a lady at the back thought I was having a Holy Ghost experience. And my wife said, "Don't do that." Now I've been asking God this week, how am I irritating?" And I'm thinking about asking my wife, next week, how am I irritating, but I need to set aside a day. We can be irritating, but without sounding like Sister Sledge, we are. Some of you are going, Sister Sledge, is that in the, in the Old Testament? C.S. Lewis said this, when I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, I thought that I could do Christianity on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology. And I wouldn't go to the churches and gospel halls. I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. (laughs) It's nice, isn't it? As I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education. And then gradually my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just <laughs> three music, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic-sided boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. Let's stay together. We're brothers and sisters. Number five, let's stand firm. Stand firm, let nothing move you. Let nothing move you. Hope changes the way we value truth and respond to trials. When Paul says stand firm, he uses a combination of two words that means to be steadfast and immovable. It's a very solid word. The Greek word that Paul uses, he also uses in the 7th chapter of 1 Corinthians, when he's writing to people there who have decided to be single for the rest of their lives, and they have decided, it's the same word, settling the matter, standing firm. And of course, the Apostle Paul loves that metaphor, and uh, he uses it writing to the Ephesians, stand firm then on the evil day, and having done all, stand. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, All we can do is just stand. Maybe you're in a situation right now. You've racked your brains. You've prayed. You've sought counsel. You've done everything you know how to do. Sometimes all you can do is just plant your feet and stand firm and say, in this, I might not have the answers, but I'm not backing away from God. I'm standing. The activist mantra goes like this. Don't just stand there do something but there are times when you don't know what to do and you don't just do something you stand there we don't need to feel guilty about the fact that we don't have the answers for some of us standing in this season is what we're required to do number six serve wholeheartedly always give yourself fully to the work of the lord Serve wholeheartedly, giving yourself fully to God's work. Serving is moment-by-moment acts of faith where you are energizing what you believe and you're translating it into serving. And faith is involved because you're serving someone who's impossible, impossible, excuse me, invisible. And sometimes the humans that you serve who are very visible, don't give you much appreciation. It's an act of faith. What's the work of the Lord here? Most commentators believe that the work of the Lord that Paul is referring to is specific gospel activity. We have discovered the truth, haven't we, that we're all full-time agents of the kingdom of God. It's not just the pastors and the missionaries. We are all called to serve God wholeheartedly in every area of life. But in making that true statement, we can do the pendulum swing thing and forget that there is gospel work that together we need to do. That's why we thank God for those volunteers, hundreds of them every weekend here at Timberline, without whom we would not be able to park our cars, without whom we would not be greeted or receive a bulletin. So many people who right now, even as we are sitting here, are volunteering to operate these lights and cameras and sound. Thank God for them. And Paul is saying in this gospel work, serve wholeheartedly. Tom Wright says, It is a matter of the greatest encouragement to Christian workers, most of whom are away from the public eye, unsung heroes and heroines, getting on faithfully and quietly with their God-given tasks That what they do in the Lord during the present time will last, will matter, will stand for all time. How God will take our prayer, our love, our writing, our music, our pastoral care, our teaching, our whole selves. How God will take this and weave its varied strands into the glorious tapestry of his new creation. We can at present have no idea that he will do so. Is part of the truth of the resurrection and perhaps one of the most comforting parts of all. And as we've been hearing about this serve day next week, this opportunity that we have to join with many other churches and get out there and put hands and feet to our faith. Do you know what will happen if we do that? We will be energized and blessed in a way that passivity would never do it. Serving's a bit like evangelism. When you share your faith, your faith is strengthened. Serving's like that. When you serve God, your faith in him is strengthened. It might be, as we thank our volunteers for their faithfulness, it might be that, who knows, God is nudging some of us to give ourselves and be involved in gospel work, as we've described it. Well, number seven, finally, and that is stay in faith because Paul says you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain stay in faith stay in faith because humanly speaking the resurrection of the body is impossible and it requires faith my dad Here he is, young soldier. Shared about him before, four years as a prisoner of war until he escaped. I remember remember when my dad came to America. He became a Christian here in America. He only came once to America and was overwhelmed by love and grace and welcome. And I smile and kind of pull your leg about the 4th of July and I celebrate it with you. One of the reasons I love America and my American friends is that that man is in heaven today because people like you, And I've trekked around the world and occasionally people say, you live in America? And you know they make those comments about those Americans because America's the big guy and it's nice to hit the big guy. And I find myself affirming and celebrating the truth that I'm privileged to live in this land of the free. My dad is with Jesus now because of love and kindness shown by my American friends after he passed I went to the funeral director to pick up his ashes I came out with a box I used to have a dad that day I had a box and I remember getting in the car and putting the box on the front seat next to me and this weird thought like should I put the seatbelt on probably probably past that now I don't know what it is about me. I don't seem to be able to get some of the basics of life right. But we, my wife and I, Kay and I, went to scatter his ashes in his favorite churchyard. <laughs> I couldn't even get that right. I mean, I, we pray a prayer. I give thanks for his life and celebrated the day. Before he passed, I said to him, Dad, do you remember in America the day you gave your life to Jesus? He couldn't talk at that point, but he nodded. I gave thanks to God for that day. And then I opened the box of ash, but I I didn't check the direction of the wind. (laughs) And I took handfuls of ash and I, and they came back. And I'm standing there covered in ash with a box. And the idea of a reunion with him seemed ridiculous. Ash. But in Christ, we affirm that that which is impossible is absolutely achievable because of God. And there is going to come a day when I'm going to bump into him again and say, hey, what's happening? And he'll probably say something like, eternity, actually. (laughs) Celebrating military this weekend and the sacrifices made, And you know, as I do, that at a military funeral or memorial, they play the taps. Lights out. Lights out. It's a beautiful, fitting tribute to those who've given everything. Jesus takes the imagery of the trumpet. And it is not lights out that day. But when the trumpet of the Lord sounds, it's lights on, resurrection morning. And I'm looking out at some of you, I won't embarrass you. Some of you that I know have lost loved ones in recent months and years. And the Bible says, comfort one another with these words because we need to hear again the truth that in Christ, the day is coming. And the reunion will be sweet. This is more than just a nice way to live your life. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We affirm it. We affirm it. I end with this. It's 22nd of November, 1963. A theater is packed. Everyone is caught up in the drama of the play, captivated by the plot, the actors in character. There comes a moment in the play where one of the actors is required to cross the stage and turn on an old transistor radio and twist the dial. It's part of the play, part of the script. And he turns on the radio and turns the tuner and there's a blur a blurt of music and a a newscaster's voice with a sentence or a word, I should say, and some more music, and he spins the dial, and suddenly the dial stops. And before he can move it, a voice says, Today in Dallas, Texas, President John F. Kennedy was shot and killed. And in that moment, the fictional world of the drama Was sent packing as the truth broke in. And the play was over. No one could get back into it. Because the truth had shattered the myth. Play over. In the crackle and the hassle and the distortion and the voices that surround our lives, the truth of the resurrection. Breaks through and says, this is the reality. This is the truth. Let all of the pretense and the trivialities of life be hushed at the news. For those in Christ, resurrection is ahead. For those in Christ, the trumpet will sound. He will come again. I look around the room as we go to prayer, and as a pastor, I see the glistening of tears on faces. The Bible says, comfort one another with these words. May strength and hope and comfort be yours. Because here is the news. He's coming back. Pray with me. Lord, as we think about this feast, we think about the great feast that there will be when the trumpet sounds and we're gathered. This truth of resurrection. We pray first of all for those who grieve today. And we realize that grieving is part of our life here. Sometimes Christians are told that they shouldn't grieve. It's not true. We do grieve, but not as those who have no hope. We grieve for the loss of those who are not with us. We're glad they're with you. We're sad they're not with us. Would you strengthen and comfort those who grieve? For any Lord who hear do not know You, Lord, they are not sure where they stand. The truth of the resurrection and your coming is an imperative. It demands that we answer the question Do we know Christ? I need to pause in my praying and saying, At the end of this time, our prayer team will be at the front here. If you want to become a follower of Jesus, they are here to help you. They've got resources ready to help you with that. Help us to serve you faithfully. Help us to be together, gathered as a family. And finally, Lord, help us to stand firm. Those who find themselves unable to do something, but just stand there, help them to stand. Grant grace and strength and peace, we pray. So we give you thanks in Jesus' name. And Everyone said... Amen.